This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So in the first talk, as you remember, that I gave, um, I explained that what I'm trying to do between the two talks is to uh, give kind of a synthesis of a theology on the Imago Dei from the biblical perspective. So one of the things that we can remember about that first talk is that um, Genesis, which I went through in the narrative, it explains to us something about the natural image in which human beings are created, okay, that there is a natural uh, dimension to the Imago Dei that all human beings share in, that there is some capacity in human beings to represent God on earth. We saw how that visible representation really is a matter of a kind of royal activity, that we have dominion over creation, that we have a kind of uh, representative role to play in making God's justice and God's solicitude for creation felt and experienceable by other people. Okay, so um, we also then saw that there is this uh, human capacity is, is threatened through sin and through evil, that it's uh, in some way uh, always under threat through the disorder that came into the world through the original sin of Adam and Eve, that this also then spread like wildfire through their descendants, through the entire world, till we get to that point in Genesis 6-6 where everybody's thoughts are always evil all the time. Okay, so there is a dire kind of predicament that human beings get themselves into. But we also saw that there is this enduring hope that God continues to mitigate the dire and baleful effects of sin through his grace. We saw this come to pass in particular with Noah. And I just want to recall this, just to remind you that Noah, the, one of the big takeaways of the Noah narrative is that it is God's prevenient grace. God's grace comes before uh, Noah. It's not anything that Noah does on his own, but God's prevenient grace that disposes Noah to be able to reestablish God's image in the world. Even in the midst of the sea of sin, the spread of sin that completely grips the entire world, there's still possible for Noah to come forward as a blameless and upright man, a man who does justice. And in doing that justice, he is able to be the principle of recreation. He's able to be the principle by which God restores order. So we see how Noah works as this principle of hope, even in the midst of the despair, you might say, of evil and sin and death. And that is kind of the, the drama, the situation that obtains all the way up until the incarnation. Um, it's possible for human beings all the way up until the incarnation it's possible for human beings at times in a limited fashion 
to continue to show forth God's justice, to continue to serve as his images in the world. But it's always tenuous, and it's always the exception rather than the rule. Remember that Noah is the exception. He's the miraculous exception amongst all of humanity. And that continues to be the case going forward, all the way up until the incarnation. So we have this, what I would call a rather um, dire predicament, a dire situation in which human beings are indeed in a fallen state themselves and in a fallen world. Uh, what I want also to just to remember, uh, to, to remind you of, is the fact that this uh, image of God that is instilled, this living image of God that he calls his people to be, this is effaced on two fronts. It is both a disorder in the soul, okay? Remember that what, the way that God created his human beings was that their mind and heart would be able to be focused on God so as to obey God, okay? That the intellect would be able to be fixed on God to know God, and that the will would be also fixed on God to love God, but that the passions, the passions would be subordinated properly in their order to the will and to the intellect, that there was an ordering there. That is what is disturbed through Adam and Eve's original sin, that is what is disturbed in the spread of evil in the world. But secondly, remember that Genesis informs us that it's the actual created world at large that is also disordered. There is an impact that human sin has on the cosmos, on God's created world. It is disfiguring in some way. And keeping those two things in mind is important if we're going to understand then how this image of God comes up again in the New Testament, particularly in Paul, and what Paul has to say about the way that Christ's salvation heals these two disorders. So Christ, in some way, his saving work addresses both the disfigurement of the human soul and the disfigurement of the created world, those two things. So in what we're going to see is that the, the power of Christ's cross is precisely, for Paul, it consists in precisely these two things. It restores the image of God within human beings, but it also, in some sense, transforms this image of God. And that's the, the idea of transformation in Paul is very important. And so what I, as a caveat here, what I should say is that Paul is not uh, what you would call a systematic theologian. Okay, so he tends to go back and forth. And remember, he is writing letters. So he is writing letters to people. He needs rhetorical punch to get through to the people to whom he is writing. So he isn't always going to be communicating in syllogisms and propositional truths. So there are times when uh, Paul seems to highlight a continuity between the natural image with which God created human beings and the supernatural image into which we are being transformed. Okay, so there's a continuity sometimes. 
But there are other places where Paul also speaks almost as if there is something super added, that there's almost a, a supernatural image that is imparted, bestowed onto people as well. So that there's a restored natural image, and in addition, this supernatural image that is nothing else than a kind of uh, reflection of God's own glory, which really ultimately has its fulfillment in heaven. Okay, so he's, he's not always thinking about this, just to, to reiterate, systematically. So it's important to recognize that. So as we begin then to turn to Paul, and I'm going to consider first uh, and foremost his letter to the Romans. This is the preeminent place where we see his theology, if you will, his theology of the image of God. But before we get there, what I want to do is just take a moment to consider some things about Paul's background. Okay, So you might know from your general knowledge or recall if you've read the, the book of Acts that Paul was born Saul and he comes from Tarsus, which is an important city in the ancient world in southeastern Turkey, modern-day southeastern Turkey, okay? That he did, he did learn to speak Greek. Probably it was his first language, that he lived in a Mediterranean world in which Greek was really the lingua franca, as they say, that it was the, the language that everyone learned to communicate in. Okay, but he did then move to Jerusalem as a young man, or probably actually as a child. And he was there under the rabbi Gamaliel, who was a leading Pharisee, studying and learning about the law, learning about Jewish tradition, learning about the Old Testament. He certainly was fluent in and well-versed in Hebrew. He certainly learned and appropriated very deeply the traditions of the Old Testament. Okay, so he be, was studying to become a master of the law of the Old Testament to become essentially a scribe and a rabbi. It is that experience that gave him a deep love and appreciation for the Old Testament, for the scripture of the Old Testament. And it instilled within him a zeal for these traditions. That zeal eventually was applied in a misguided way to his persecution of Christians. Though these were heretics to him. They were in the synagogue speaking crazy things, believing crazy things. And he himself explains how he brought many men and women in chains to the Sanhedrin to stand trial. In the book of Acts, we also hear how St. Paul, uh, or excuse me, Saul of Tarsus, then Saul of Tarsus, was there present at the stoning of St. Stephen. They were laying their cloaks at his feet as he looked on in approbation and approval. And we also, in that story, hear St. Stephen pray, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. And I like to think, and I think this is actually part of St. Luke's subtle point in writing his two-volume work this way, I like to think that God answers the prayer of St. Stephen precisely on the road to Damascus that there is some connection between that prayer and God reaching out to St. Paul to show him divine light, to give him the gospel in this supernatural mode. That he has this experience where he is blinded by this divine light and receives there this converting power of God's grace. 
He is renewed. He is recreated. He is renamed in this experience. And he goes forward then, being given the mission to preach to the Gentiles this saving gospel of Jesus Christ. I wanted to go through all of that because the the point of this is that St. Paul was uniquely positioned to be able to articulate, to express this gospel to the Gentiles. He's able to draw on this deep love and, and learning of the Hebrew scriptures and to fuse it also with Hellenistic ideas, with Stoic philosophy, with these types of rhetorical uh, kind of devices that would have had a lot of power to convince the Gentile audience. He is uniquely positioned in this regard. And in essence, if I had to sum it up, Paul is an inspired exegete. Paul is an inspired exegete of the Old Testament, an inspired interpreter. He rereads the Old Testament. He rereads and gives the deeper meaning of many of the Old Testament stories with which his contemporaries would have been familiar. So he proceeds often by first explaining the universal significance of God's saving activity in history to the Gentiles, but then he's also keeping in mind the fact that there are still other men and women out there who were born Jewish but became Christian to explain to them as well the significance of these events. So Paul is careful because he doesn't want to explain the Christ event that that Christ came as though he dropped out of the sky. He wants his Gentile audience to understand that there's this whole history and that this history begins in creation. This history begins with the fact that human beings were created in the image of God. They were created to know and to love God and that through human sin and disobedience, it became very difficult for that to happen. So Jesus Christ in some way addresses humanity as a whole in the cosmos, in this darkened world. And this is precisely where he begins in his letter to the Romans. He begins in the first few chapters, uh, chapters one to three of Romans, by addressing the problem addressing what human experience is in the cosmos without Christ. And it's interesting here because he, at the same time, affirms that there is a human power to know God in and through the cosmos. He says in the first chapter that it's precisely the fact that human beings ignore the signs of God in the created world that they are blameworthy. Okay, that they can indeed look out onto the created world and reason, this is what we call natural theology, to an intelligent creator. But he says that they have not done this, that they have ignored. And the they is both the Jewish people and and all of the pagan people in the world. So he's addressing humanity as a whole that in various ways, shapes, and forms, human beings ignore the revelation and the natural knowledge of God that exists in the world. At the end of this kind of 
what we call a, a, a what a, it, there's a rhetorical kind of name for this argument, this diatribe. That's right. That's what I was looking for. At the end of this diatribe, he explains how the Romans and the, the Romans and all pagan peoples had, in fact, consistently exchanged the image of God's glory for the image of these corruptible men of the image of animals and four-legged beasts. And Paul there is really trying to jab his Roman audience who really despised the Egyptians and the other people who worshiped deities that had animal forms. But what he's saying is that if you're not worshiping the one true God, if you're not worshiping this image of glory, then it's all the same. There's, there's no reason to elevate Roman paganism from Egyptian paganism. It's all worshiping creatures over here, separating that, you're, you're, you're exchanging worship of the one true God for this. This is how he characterizes the, this, this willful rejection of natural knowledge of God, this willful rejection of the ability to know that God exists and that there is one creator of this well-ordered world. Then, and only then, he moves on to the predicament of human beings as they have rejected the revelation of God. So he moves from the natural, the rejection of natural knowledge of God to the rejection of revelation. And that is how he contextualizes the plight of the Jewish people, that despite being given this revelation of the Messiah, they have not accepted it. So Paul explains in chapter four of Romans how God began to address the situation of sin and evil in the world by extending a promise to Abraham. And what does he say there? He says that the promise occurs before giving Abraham the law, giving Abraham circumcision. The reason why he does this is to explain that it is Abraham's faith Abraham's belief, Abraham's acceptance of knowledge of God that restores him into relationship with God. We can classify that as a restoration then of the image of God, of the ability to know God and to love God. It is precisely in giving Abraham this covenant and this promise, Paul says, that God begins to address the problem of evil and sin in the world. It is there that God begins to conquer evil, to conquer death. But that is only the beginning, and it has its completion, its end, its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And thus we come to Romans 5. Romans 5, 12 to 21, one of the main events in Paul's letters, okay? This is a hugely important passage where Paul as inspired interpreter, is referring back to Genesis 3, okay? He's interpreting how Genesis 3 is, uh, how it, it presented the original problem and how Christ and his cross solves the problem. So Paul describes the effect of Christ's sacrifice on the cross with reference to Adam's disobedience. And he sets them up in what is called a type-antitype relationship. Jesus Christ is the antitype 
whose saving work is a mirror image, an opposite mirror image of the disastrous work of disobedience that is perpetrated by the type Adam. So whereas through Adam's one transgression, sin enters the world and death comes to all people, through Christ's one sacrifice on the cross, sin is conquered and life comes to all people. So there are opposite effects, mirror images. As Paul explains, the power of the cross far outweighs the power of sin. Although judgment and condemnation were brought on by the one sin, the gift of the cross brings acquittal even after many sins, an infinite number of sins through generations and through centuries. In this way, Paul makes clear that Jesus Christ, the new man, by his obedience on the cross, undoes the heinous effects of man's first act of disobedience. The cross effectively ends the reign of sin in the world so that the reign of grace might begin. This is Paul's wording. The reign of sin ends and with it death. And then the reign of grace begins. And here he is echoing Genesis 4-7. Genesis 4-7, God turns to Cain after Cain becomes crestfallen because Abel's sacrifice is accepted, but his is not looked so favorably upon. And what does God say to Cain at that point? He says, your sin is a croucher at the door, but if you will, you can rule it. You can rule it. Tim Shell, you can, you will rule over sin. That doesn't come to pass until, for Paul, until Jesus Christ. Cain and everyone after him proves inadequate to the task because, after all, we are only mortal human beings. This is Paul's point. With the cross comes a rule, a new sovereign, a new era in which grace rules. That's his point. Now, it's important also here just to take a moment to understand that Paul is talking about sin in a twofold analogous sense in, in this passage, okay? So he's talking about sometimes personal sins, okay? So these are uh, related, though distinct, senses of the word. So personal sin is immoral action that all human beings partake in. He says, all sin. Okay, all have sin. They have all committed sinful acts. That is to say, they've all in some way, shape or form before, uh, behaved unjustly and they have participated there through in evil in the world. But Paul is also talking about sin as a state, as a cosmic force, as a thing that rules over the created world. It's personified in this regard. It is a fallen state of existence that he's talking about. And as with uh, analogy, um, these, these terms or these senses of sin relate to one another in a particular way. If you remember, um, I don't know if anyone's ever read uh, Aristotle's uh, thing on, on analogical predication, but his go-to example is health and healthy, right? Okay, so if I'm healthy, Running is healthy, I guess. Uh, the uh, I don't I don't really like that fact, but I have to accept it. Um, 
brand cereal is healthy, okay? Which I, I eat every morning, so. Okay, so these three sentences, you can see that they mean different things, but there are analogous senses of the word health and healthy, okay? So the point that I wanna make here is that healthy cereal when I eat it and healthy running when I do it, which isn't very often, they conduce to me being healthy. They set about a state of affairs when I become a healthy person, okay? In a similar way, the state of fallen humanity, the state of the fallen cosmos, the state of sin, the rule of sin, conduces to make a state of affairs where it is more likely that human beings will commit personal sin. It, it kind of impels you in a certain way. And there is an ongoing effect of this concupiscence, of this fallenness, that really impels and pushes people into the personal sin. This is part of what Paul is talking about. So what is this solution then? The, the solution of the cross is to restore a state of affairs, restore the cosmos, so that the rule of sin is no longer we begin the rule of grace. We begin a state of being that conduces to the opposite thing, to obeying God, to living with God in relationship. And thus you can see how it's possible for the human person to shine more brightly as God's image in this state of affairs. And that this can become the rule instead of the exception. Whereas Noah was the exception instead of the rule, now. Noah, like people who obey God, can become the rule instead of the exception. For Paul, sin is an aberration. It is not the norm of the Christian life. That's an important point. This is what it means for him to restore the soul so that mind and heart can be trained on God, focused on God, to obey God. But the thing that I want to also highlight here is that for Paul, this involves a restoration of creation itself. It involves a restoration of the cosmos for him. This is the, it's an invisible kind of restoration, but it's nonetheless reality. That the rule of sin is gone and the rule of grace begins. So the twofold fallenness of the image is now restored in both senses, the created world and the soul. Okay. This then comes to a peak, uh, his crescendo in Romans 8, where he contextualizes that personal salvation of individual humans within the renewal and restoration of all creation. So just to read a couple of quick lines here from this passage, uh, Paul says, For creation awaits with eager expectation the revelation of the children of God. For creation was made subject to futility, not of its own accord, but because of the one who subjected it, Adam, in the hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that all of creation is groaning in labor pains even until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit also groan within ourselves as we await for adoptions. We know that all things work for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 
so that he might be, Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. There are many things that I could go into within this passage, but my point is just to emphasize that there is a restoration of creation that is brought about through the cross, and it's happening now. This is a process that's going on now in our lives. This is a process of restoration that is going on on the interior level of the soul, but also, again, that the the reign of sin is gone. So there is a restoration that is happening in the world. Now, this is wonderful kind of abstract thinking. (laughs) So... uh, what, is, what does this mean? How does this work itself out? How is this uh, applicable? How is this relevant to us? Because uh, it, it's, I, I admit, very difficult to work through Paul's thinking sometimes, okay? So if we were to put it this way, um, if the cross redeems and restores human nature, does that mean that every human being is redeemed? Uh, How is it that this applies to the individual, each one of us? And in order to answer those questions, one thing that I would point out about Paul is that he's thinking about things in terms of what is called the already but not yet. Christ has already won the definitive victory over death and ended the rule of sin on the cross. It's definitive. It's happened. It's done. Nothing else needs to be done to offer salvation to human beings. But there's already, uh, but there's also a but not yet, okay? The consummation of the process will happen at the end of time. So we are living between the point when Christ has redeemed, definitively won the victory, but before there is this complete restoration at the end of time. Already but not yet. And this is something that will only be completed at the end of time. Really quickly, uh, one place that we can think about, um, just to make this a little bit more probably clearer, would be the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is precisely an elongated vision of the end of time, of the, the thing that will happen when this process is complete. And it's highly symbolic. I think there are 265 of the 404 verses of the book make all kinds of allusions to the Old Testament. You can count them in various ways, but there are up to 550 different separate allusions. So it's using all of this imagery in order to express what will happen at the end of time. And the created world features very heavily in that vision. What happens to the created world? It is destroyed. It, there, it happens piece by piece, but it's destroyed. It eventually comes up in a giant conflagration, and then there is recreation. The new Jerusalem comes down. There is a recreation of human beings, of the elect, of the redeemed. And what is not there, the one thing that is not recreated, is the sea. Because the sea is chaos. The sea is the chaotic element symbolizing sin and death and evil in the world. So that is going to be definitively wiped away where there will be no more tears for God will have wiped away every tear. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more possibility of sin and death and evil. That's the point of revelation. 
That's the consummation. That's the final end point. But for Paul in the already and not yet, there is a need to apply the grace of the cross to the individual. There's a need to apply the victory of the cross to an individual's life. And how does that happen? How does that cross long ago restore and renew the soul? It is through baptism. In the very next chapter after Romans 5, we get to Romans 6, <laughs> which makes sense. Okay, so the Christ, that Christ's victory in time is applied in time to the individual soul. This is what Paul is making clear in Romans 6, verse 4 to verse 5. He says, We were indeed buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. For if we have grown into union with him through a death like his, we shall also be united with him in the resurrection. So in this way, Paul identifies the sacramental power of baptism as the means by which the gift of the cross is received by individuals, by which we restore or have restored our soul, the possibility of once again having mind and heart ordered toward God to know and love God. That too is very beautiful, but then there's another problem, which is that we all know, I think we all know, that sin has a way of persisting, personal sin, that is, has a way of persisting even after baptism. I think about this, my sibling, so not to be too uh, you know, uh, self-disclosive or whatever, but my, my siblings, the thing that makes me very sad, do not practice the faith. Okay, so I have an older sister, an older brother, a younger brother, none of whom uh, practice at all. One of the reasons in their own way that each of my siblings has articulated, they don't do, uh, why they don't go to mass, why they don't believe anymore, is because of the, what you would call the scandal uh, of sin that has been produced by other believers, my parents, other people. They go to mass, but then they still act like jerks. Like if I can just summarize it in that, okay? Yeah, we 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 do not, we are not perfected immediately. We are not perfected immediately in time through the application of the grace of baptism. And that presents a problem. How do we address that problem? This is something that Paul also speaks about, but only obliquely in his letters. And he talks about this in terms of really the forgiveness of sins in a general way. He, all, he does address the need to obtain forgiveness from other people. He speaks about this in Acts in his speech. He also speaks about this in Ephesians and other places. We need to seek forgiveness from one another, but also to give forgiveness to one another. And this is part of Paul's point, is that for the baptized who have received the gift of the cross, we are enabled to be able to forgive others. We have been given the grace and the power to be able to forgive genuinely from our heart other people for transgressions against us. This is one of Paul's lesser uh, emphasized teachings, 
but it's nonetheless, it's there, it's present. Now, in addition to that, of course, there is, I would add, confession, the sacrament of penance, that this is the sacramental, sure, definite means by which we are renewed, we are restored in our relationship with God. And if I were to um, offer a, a kind of a, a image that maybe limps a little bit, it would be, it's like dropping a corroded penny into a mixture of vinegar and salt. So I don't know if you've ever noticed a, you know, how credit up pennies get, right? Uh, this was like a third grade demonstration in, in chemistry. I, I, it stuck with me over the years, what can I say? So, you know, I, I, I recognize that there's a penny that I can't even see Abraham Lincoln's face on it anymore. And if I put it in that mixture for five minutes and then rinse it off in water and wipe it off with a towel, it becomes shiny. I can see Abraham Lincoln's face again. It becomes like it's new. And that, okay, it's a static image of a guy who's long gone, okay, obviously. <laughs> it's not the living image that I took very great pains to describe in Genesis, okay? But nonetheless, there's something there that obtains that this is the power of confession. It's the reapplication of the grace of the cross in our lives that restores the image. And it can happen ad infinitum. That is a powerful reality that we ought never to take for granted. That is the root, the, the baptism and its restoration, its, its reapplication, always, uh, each and every you know, week, hopefully, week or, or month, you know, just regularly in our lives. This is the way in which Paul uh, describes to us the, the ability to be restored and renewed and recreated in the image of God, making his justice, making his grace felt in the lives of others. Because when we are in a state of grace, with grace ruling over us, it is more likely, it conduces to our enacting works of mercy, works of love to other people. This is how Paul kind of puts it all together. Now, the other, the, the, the final kind of element of this that I would just note is that there is a need in Paul for perseverance. And this is, again, the, the, the Christian life that he's getting into, the significance of these great saving events for us as individuals, the need for perseverance. We have to run so as to win the race. We have to run the race to the end. We have to work out our, our salvation in fear and trembling. We can be completely convinced of and hopeful that Christ's cross has won the definitive victory and yet, at the same time, stand in need of working out the salvation in our own lives. And what Paul, again, is referencing here is that it's not over until it's over. It's not over until the end of time. As long as we draw breath, we can either refuse or, or we can either turn away from God in sin and cooperating with sin and death, or we can turn back to God all the more in the grace of his sacraments. There is one kind of final part of scripture that I would just point to here, which is that there does seem to be a point of no return for Paul and for St. John. That there is a point at which God knows that he has given, obviously, every grace to us that we need for salvation. And yet, there still 
is freedom for us to reject that grace. This is what is in view in Revelation 13, as well as in uh, Romans 1. These are places where there is uh, an image of God. It's, it's a description of God allowing people to make a decision and then God handing them over to their passions, to their impurity, to become, uh, say, vessels of sin and death. Okay? In Revelation 13, the specific part of the vision is this, that there, are, there is an image of God, Jesus Christ, and there is an image of the beast, the devil. And there are people who accept worship of Christ, and there are people who accept worship of this image of the beast. And they, by doing that, they actually accept a mark on them, the mark of the beast. To be able to get some type of earthly benefit, there are people who exchange the image of God for the image of the beast in order to get ahead. And there's a lot of other uh, aspects of the symbolism in this story that I could you know, go into, but this is the thing that I want to point out, is that there is this exchange, which Paul also seems to be talking about in Romans 1. And this is the other kind of silly image that I would, I would offer. Okay. I don't know if you've ever gone to a tourist trap before, but like, uh, I went to the St. Louis arch. I got a real kick about going up there, you know, at the top of the arch or like the Mount Rushmore. But a lot of times these places will have a souvenir penny machine. So you put a penny in the machine and it squishes it, turns it into an oval and then it stamps like an image on it, and then on the other side, like a slogan, like Gateway to the West, St. Louis. Meet me in St. Louis, something like that. Okay, the image of Abraham Lincoln in that case is irrecoverable. It's, got, it's been exchanged for a new image that cannot be recovered. And that, I, again, as a physical, as limited as that image is, is the difference between final perseverance and not. It is definitively rejecting God in a way that someone's image of God is irrecoverable, that one no longer images God by no longer loving or knowing God and being completely cut off. Now that isn't meant to be a reason that we should judge one another or try to evaluate one another, whether, you know, this is, you know, something that that's for God alone to do, but it, it bespeaks the sobering reality that it is possible to reject God's image to reject God's grace. Okay. The, the final point that Paul makes is that when we do persevere to the end, we are able to be transformed into the one true image of God, Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is his point. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last man, a life-giving spirit, that is Christ. But the spirit was not first, rather the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, earthly. The second man from heaven, heavenly. As was the earthly one, so also are the earthly. And as is the heavenly one, so also are the heavenly. Just as we have been born in the image of the earthly one, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly one. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and all will be changed. In this way, Paul links the perfection of the divine image in humanity with the reality of the resurrection. 
It is only the resurrected body that will serve as a perfect, undiminishable image of God. That even in eternity, we will serve as images of God bodily in our resurrected bodies. We must undergo this death, this final perseverance, to be able to attain that. So it is something that we'll only obtain at the very end of our lives, at the end of time. And for Paul, it is our rootedness in Jesus Christ that enables us to do this. This is his point in Romans 8, 28 to 29. Again, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, being conformed, transformed into the image of his son. Jesus Christ is the preeminent image of God. Paul repeatedly refers to Jesus Christ as the image of God. And we, insofar as we are rooted in union with Christ in his grace, are images of God as well. And I would like to close by connecting this with the mystical body of Christ. This is what Paul seems to be also echoing here. That Jesus Christ, totius Christus, head and body, head and members, that is the image of God for Paul. That this communion of love, this communion of knowing God, is the perfect, complete image of God that will never be destroyed, that can never be diminished, that will endure forever. That's, that's it. <laughs> so you talked about how um, in Romans and in Revelation there uh, it seems to be suggested this like point of no return um, and then I guess you see in the gospel as well Christ makes it seem like in evangelization there's a point where you just have to shake the dust from your feet and like move on to the next town um, I don't know and like evangelization is there some way to know, I guess, when you're trying to evangelize if that point of no return has already been uh, well, imprinted on another person? or like. No, there's no way to know. Uh, it, when, we're talking about, when we're talking about matters of salvation and whether this person is has been... It, it, yeah, I mean, so this is what I'm speaking about is God is the judge, you know, who am I? None of us have that power to, to judge. But if you're talking about evangelization, there is um, a kind of, if you want a point of no return, in that people do become obstinate and they don't, be, yeah, there is a lack of receptivity. People can place a, an obstacle, an obex in, in between that their, themselves and God, uh, such that you're never going to, uh, through words, convert them. So um, none of the, uh, so here's an example. None of the apostles would have been able to, I think, convert Paul or Saul through their preaching. It takes this divine light, this, you know, supernatural mode to, you know, convert him. And that's um, in the mystery of God's providence uh, and economy of salvation. He acts differently with different people. But we have confidence and sure faith that he gives sufficient grace to all to, to be saved, to know him, to love him. So, yeah, uh, it's just it's more I bring that up more as a theoretical possibility and, and for ourselves to think uh, it's a sobering thought that, you know, we don't want to be presumptuous, I guess, of 
the the ability to uh, continually apply uh, and and have reception of of God's grace in our lives. It is, you know, there is there is a wideness to God's mercy, and there is an infinite uh, love that God has for us. That the application of, of His grace. Uh, there's no limit to the number of times that we can go to confession and, and experience this saving grace. But um, mysteriously, there are uh, some people that um, reject it all. So that's kind of the point, is that there is that, that sobering possibility. Yeah. Um, I know that you mentioned, like, after, um, after the fall, um, let's see, God's, you said that God's image was effaced. Mm-hmm. Um, would you, when you use the word of face, do you mean like his image was damaged or it was just a harder to show his image? Okay, good question. So what what I mean by efface when I say after Genesis 3 that the image was effaced, uh, uh, what what I would say is that um, the, the image is, uh, in fact... Yeah, I mean, damaged would be a, a fine word. I think it's it's, but it's not destroyed. It's not. It's still there, but it doesn't function as it in God's initial kind of plan for the creation in Genesis one to two. As and so, yes, it's not as clear. It doesn't. Uh, people have a more difficult time uh, seeing God's image uh, after the fall and. Um, that is something that also even now continues to persist. If um, uh, if you look out at the fallen world and you're not um, if you're not around people who are redeemed by grace, uh, if you're you know that, that you can get a sense of this being more difficult to see. Um, if that makes sense, yeah, yeah, hundred. <clears throat> Once a revelation occurs and God wipes away sin, um, does man return to the state um, before original sin, or what kind of state do we do we enter? Okay, good question. Yeah, so uh, after after revelation, uh, the, the consummation of all time, do we return to the state before original sin? No, we we actually go uh, proceed to a higher state. Uh, honestly, so it's a resurrected body. Um, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 is um, it is a body that is a uh, uh, its own kind of thing that we we ha- obviously have no experience of this, but it, it, it will be a real body. Uh, so it will still be composite body and soul, but we will be able to see God uh, as God is and that we will be in a, a unbreakable communion of love and knowledge uh, of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit amongst his holy ones. So in the, the garden, it was a breakable bond. And uh, there was still, you know, if we look at the narrative there, this the there were times when God's presence was nearer and far, okay, so that God comes into the garden during the breezy part of the evening to, you know, speak with them, so that it wasn't an uninterrupted uh, kind of vision of love and, and knowledge. So... That's the difference. So that's elevated. Yeah. Supernatural, uh, in fact. Um, at the beginning of the talk, you talked a little bit about how um, St. Paul was kind of like jabbing the pagans, the uh-huh. Egyptians, for their like idol worship of like animals and different things like that. 
what would how can that kind of apply to the I mean, what would St. Paul's kind of like understanding then be of like our modern like Christian art and like iconography and stuff like that in the Christian lives? Oh, so I okay, so the question was um, with regard to Romans 1, Paul kind of needling of pagans about worshiping uh, images, like what would that, what would he say about iconography? Okay. So one of the things about sacred art and iconography is just to say that it, um, yeah, it requires a proper understanding of what it is and what its purpose is. So an icon um, is meant to be a visual representation of a reality that is in some way parallel to a written word. So when we read uh, Romans, um, you know, we can also look at an icon of baptism. So uh, uh, what that means and meditate on it, it can transport, it transports us, puts us in touch with that reality. Uh, the difference is that these, so when the, we're talking about idol worship and these idols and images, that there was an attribution of uh, divine presence within this physical object in this specific space, and then causality, that this worshiping this idol would cause things to happen, either good or bad. So people worshiped idols to make bad things happen to people they didn't like, as well as to make good things happen for themselves and people they did like. So that's kind of the Yeah, so uh, so talking about transformation, uh, asking, will we still be distinct from Jesus, the Son of God? Yes, I mean, so w one of my uh, points in here, which um, I, I maybe skipped over a little bit, was just that, um, so yeah, Jesus is uh, the image of God, and that's a way of for Paul to speak about his humanity, that he is... Yeah, the eternal, uh, pre-existent Son of God, second person of the Trinity, but that he's also visible as the image of God, experienceable in the world. Um, and then, but it's also for him that he is the preeminent image of God. And there is this mystical union that we're all desiring and searching for, and that's the life of the sacraments, to be union, to have union with Christ. So there's a sense in which like I'm not an image of God on my own, but rather for Paul, there's a mystical communion in Christ of the entire Christ. So that's Christ, Jesus Christ, the head, he's called the, you know, and then his members, the mystical body, the church. So we only are able to serve and to function as this image of God insofar as we are united to Christ in the church, in the mystical body of Christ. So we are distinct, but it's also a way of, of recognizing that there is this reality, this ecclesial reality of the church as a mystical body of Christ, that also it, it is the, the complete living image of God.